Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, March 19th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Last week, we talked to Mark Jacobson at Stanford University about the possibility of using renewable energy for 100% of our energy needs in the next, oh, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years. And we came up to the idea that, yes, even though the science potentially is possible there, the politics might not be. We just, as a world, might not be ready to make such drastic changes. This week's interview is the opposite. We talked to a person who starts with the politics first in order to aid uh, and, and, and help the world survive the coming onset of climate change and, of course, all the ways in which habitats have been destroyed already by human intervention. So this week I talked to Rhett Butler, who founded a website called mongabay.com, which now is more than just a website. It's actually a news source for people who are interested in conservation. Rhett spent a lot of time as a kid traveling with his parents to all kinds of far-off places, and he became really interested in rainforests in particular, and really saddened by the fact that rainforests are being destroyed by humans. So as part of his work, he now, actually in, in most of his work now, he works not only to track how rainforests are being destroyed, but also what it is that we can do in order to conserve them. Is this the new generation of... Um, conservationists, where politics comes first before the science. This is a marked departure from how it was yeah, that, 50 that's what, years ago. That's what really interested me about Rhett's story, uh, is this notion that, you know, usually it's the scientists who are interested in the science, and then they realize that in order to preserve what it is that they love, they need to, you know, get involved in politics. But here's a person who's sort of taken the other direction and decided that at first off, everybody needs the information to be uh, you know, to be to be verified, to be truthful, and to be available. And so that's essentially what Mongabay does now. It provides people with the information they need on what is actually happening today in the rainforests in various parts of the world, not just rainforests, but all kinds of issues related to conservation. Because you can imagine that if you've got people who are motivated uh, to you know cons- you know to to, to work in conservation. You can exaggerate the science, right? And that's not good um, because ultimately people will 
call you out on it. And um, especially companies who have money where they can, you know, send people out to <clears throat> fact check your stuff if they find, you know, one bad, one exaggerated fact, I should say, in your story, you know, they're going to call you out on it. So um, Rhett's really been interested in making sure that um, the facts are out there for people who want to use them. Uh, and that, that he feels that that is actually an important uh, front line for the conservation effort. So let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Rhett Butler. Rhett Butler, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell me a little bit about how you got interested in conservation in general. What was your childhood like? Well, it, my interest in conservation was really born out of my childhood. Um, I had the great fortune of having a mother who was a travel agent, and a father who had a lot of airline miles for business. And so growing up, they prioritized travel. Um, so they would take my sister and I to places like Venezuela and Australia and Ecuador instead of, say, Disneyland. And so we had these um, amazing experiences traveling. And I always had a special interest in herps, so reptiles and amphibians. And uh, the best reptiles and amphibians, from my perspective, were in the rainforest. So that gave me this special interest in rainforest from a very early age. And so we would travel these places and have these great experiences. And then as I grew older, I, I became aware of what was happening to, to rainforests and wild areas generally. And the first time it really touched me personally was um, I was 12. We went to Eastern Ecuador and we stayed with a traditional indigenous community in an area near Yasuni National Park, which arguably has some of the highest biodiversity on earth. And so we stayed in this, in this forest area and I, I made friends with the kids in the village and we'd go out and look for frogs and, and whatnot came back and a few months later, there was a front page story in the uh, San Francisco Chronicle about a huge oil spill that had happened on the Rio Napo upriver from where I'd been. So what that meant is the whole area I visited was now coated in oil. And so all I could think about is what had happened to my friends in the forest and the animals. Uh, and then when I was in high school, I had another similar experience where I went to Borneo, um, had a really amazing time hiking through this beautiful forest. Um, I met a uh, scientist there and we kept in correspondence. Uh, this is before I had emailed some via letters. And um, a few months later, the forest was pulped to make paper. And so once that happened, I wanted to try to raise awareness about rainforests. And so I started doing research and um, didn't really find the kind of information that I thought was needed to sort of raise awareness and advance progress on the issue. And so um, I decided to create my own resource, which was writing this book. And so that's what I started to do when I uh, began in college. So when I was growing up, um, and I think we're about the same age, there was this like big fear that the rainforests were going to disappear because of you know some of the things that you're talking about, these environmental disasters, but also deforestation. Um, and I feel like I don't hear about that as much anymore. Um, is there anything that came out of that time period that has slowed down the destruction of the rainforests? Or are people just inured now to that information? Well, I think these things go in cycles. There's kind of fads or trends. And in the 1980s, um, biodiversity was kind of a hot word. And so people were really interested in this new idea of, of looking at biological diversity, which is you know wildlife, plants, things like that. And that seems to have waned since the 80s and 90s. And you know now we talk about a lot about climate change. And I'm not really sure why that is. If it's just, it'll be something next, you know, a, a generation from now. Um, but yeah, I grew up in that era where we heard about the rainforest is going to be gone by 2000. And some of that narrative was really extreme. 
And the thing is, is the facts are pretty bad with forests. And so you don't really need to sort of exaggerate things. You can kind of focus on the facts and it's still pretty terrifying. And that gets us, gets us to where we need to be. So, um, yeah. And I mean, so there has been some progress on forests in, in recent, the past 10 years, let's say. Um, so kind of the champion of deforestation in the tropics, uh, the rainforest was Brazil. And deforestation peaked in Brazil um, around 2004. And so since then, there's been about uh, 70, 80% decline in annual clearing in the, in the Brazilian Amazon. And so that's been a really positive story because um, you know, it shows that deforestation can slow. Um, it's it started to creep a little bit up back up in Brazil of late, but um, it's still nowhere near where it was um, 15 years ago. And, and as you mentioned, you know the facts sort of are are bad enough. We don't need to embellish them. Um, that's something that you've sort of talked or railed against in terms of NGOs who do embellish the facts. And 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 you know we've we've had. You know, we, we've talked on this show about, you know, how there does sometimes seem to be this conflict between organizations for whom, um, you know, they want to raise awareness and, and conservation, and, and that's their mission. And, you know, the scientists who sometimes have to backpedal from some of the claims that these NGOs make. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, so it is a problem. I mean, you know, some people might say, oh, well, it's no big deal if we kind of exaggerate things and, and whatnot. But I've been in I've been in conversations with, say, like the palm oil sector, and then there's scientists and there's activists. And so the palm oil sector can say, um, "Hey, all you all you people are on the same side. You know, you're on the activist side." And so they're they're putting si- conservation scientists in with the activists. And so essentially, scientists who are just looking at these things objectively are kind of instead of being in the middle where they probably should be, are being viewed as you know the enemy of of the palm oil industry or whatnot. So it does cause problems. I mean, that, that's just an example of a problem that, that, that can be caused. And so um, it's probably almost 10 years ago now, but there were some activist groups that were saying, you know, orangutans would be extinct by 2010 or 2011. And that was literally one or two years away. And with a, popula- a wild population of orangutans of 50 to 60,000, it's very highly unlikely. So it doesn't really help your cause. It's, yeah, I mean, or- orangutans are going extinct at this unsustainable rate or are, are, are headed towards extinction, but it's not it's not a year or two away. Let's just focus on what the facts are. So I think it is really important to um, have credibility in your, in your campaigns. And so, I mean, that said, there are a lot of activist groups that do really good, really good work. It's just, um, it helps to have a fact-based approach. And um, one group that I feel, at least on the forest sector, that's, that's been quite, um, quite effective since, since adopting a very, or a more fact-based approach has been, has been Greenpeace, at least on the forest issues. And so, um, Starting around the mid 2000s, they started really digging into supply chains of, of some of these companies and coming up with quite rigorous research showing that these companies were cutting down these forests and then these commodities are going to these supply chains, which were then being used by companies like McDonald's. And what that's done is it's made it really hard for these big companies to counter Greenpeace because they have all the data and all the facts. And so um, it really undercuts the argument that you know these, these uh, NGOs are just making up making up information to hurt us. So um, I've, I've noticed that in the past, you know, 10 or 15 years, that's been a, a very, a very productive strategy in terms of advancing these, these causes is once you kind of bring facts into the equation. Yeah, we, we actually had on the show, um, a captain from a Greenpeace ship uh, come and talk about his experiences. And one of the things that struck me is that, you know, he had a lot of passion for the conservation side of it for protecting the environment. But he and but he was very open and honest about leaving the science to the scientists, and that that was not his job, and that it was not going to be his area of expertise. 
And, you know, I can respect that. And uh, but I, I agree with you that for a lot of us, you know, conservation organizations seem to be synonymous with the scientists who are studying these things, you know, in part because the scientists, when they start studying these things, tend to become activists themselves since they see, you know, these the, the, the sort of downside. So how, what do you see in terms of how that should play out in the future? Like, do you think that, you know, how, how do we, should scientists be activists? Or, you know, how, how do they maintain the kind of objectivity? I mean, that's a good question. So, I mean, it's very important for scientists to, to you know, be scientifically rigorous in terms of becoming activists. I mean, that's, um, that's a very controversial um, issue within the science field. And so um, I interact with a lot of scientists, obviously, and some have kind of gone into the activism realm. And it's been interesting to see how that's received by their fellow scientists. Some say, well, you know, they shouldn't be doing that. Others say, great. I mean, these are really dire problems. Um, I think the key thing is really being sure as long as, long as you're being fact-based and using science to support your, you know, to support the issue, that's that's really what scientists can bring to the table. A lot of scientists aren't great communicators. And so I think that's kind of where the breakdown often happens. And so um, activists, NGOs may be better at communicating these things. And so um, when when scientists come together with activists, then you you run into this kind of almost like politicalization of, of the issue. But um, there are scientists who are who are just using their science and focusing on that and while also trying to be good communicators. Yeah. And so that seems to be, you know, where Mangabe comes in, where, you know, you're kind of at the in that middle ground, you're communicating the science uh, so that people can make decisions about policy um, on the basis of the facts. So tell us a little bit about um, how you started and, and what the organization is all about now. Sure. So Mangabe is a journalism organization, so we're not on the advocacy side. And we just like to make that clear because sometimes people try to paint us in a certain way. So it's saying that, oh, this is biased or, or, or whatnot. Um, Mangabe uh, emerged out of this, um, you know, these, these experiences I had in childhood. So I, when I started in college, I began writing a book about rainforests. I spent my career, when I was in university, I was actually an economics math major. So it was very different and nothing to do with, with kind of the traditional conservation area or even journalism. So I like to say that I have um, totally unqualified for doing what I do now. But um, yeah, so I worked on, on this book on the side while I was in college. Um, I managed, thanks to AP credit, I, I managed to finish school a year early. I spent that year wrapping up this book. Um, I found a publisher. I went through peer reviews. Um, the the you know reviews came back and, and the publisher was ready to go. But then um, there's one caveat, and that was uh, the 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 publisher didn't have money to put pictures in the book. So it's an academic press. So they proposed publishing this book with maybe some grayscale images. Um, for me, that sort of defeated the purpose of what I was trying to do, which was to raise awareness and um, you know have everyone read this. And so I decided instead of publishing it as a book to put it, to convert it into a website so everyone could read it for free. And I decided to name it Manga Bay after this um, special place, uh, special island off Madagascar. And so Nosi Manga Bay is this island um, it's covered with rainforest, surrounded by coral reefs. Um, right next to it is a breeding ground for humpback whales. It's uh, home to all sorts of great herps, as well as uh, lemurs and, and interesting creatures like that. So it was kind of my idea of paradise. And so I chose that name. I wanted, I spelled it differently, but I wanted something unique. So if I went to Excite or Yahoo or whatever you use back then to search, I could easily see who was talking about Manga Bay. And so that was the origin. But um, the reality was I wasn't going to run a website for a living. Uh, I had to have a real job. And so I um, was working in Silicon Valley for a startup. Uh, but nights and weekends, I'd work on Manga Bay. Um, and then in around mid-2003, 
um, Google launched a program where you put ads on your site. So I put some advertising on my site. And because the site was actually popular, it started to generate revenue. And so within six months, it was equal to half my take-home pay. So I thought, well, maybe I, I could quit my job and pursue my passion. And so that's what I did. And then once I was doing Manga Bay full-time, um, I was able to you know, do other things with the site. So uh, what Manga Bay is probably best known for now is its nude service, uh, which I launched in 2005. And so for the first, um, until 2008, Manga Bay was just, you know, a guy in his pajamas writing articles about, um, about conservation. So I did a lot of traveling and whatnot, interviewed a lot of scientists, but um, it was a one-person show, essentially. Um, and so people thought we were a much bigger organization. They, people would contact me asking for jobs to use my helicopter. I don't know why they thought I had a helicopter, maybe because <laughs> I took, you know, aerial photos from airplanes when I was traveling. But um, yeah, and so it, it grew popular. And then eventually I hired a, a staff writer and, you know, the two of us were doing Manga Bay, but it was um, a very small enterprise based off advertising, which, uh, you know, since 2008 has not, <laughs> has not been a great space. Um, and I had all these ideas for things I wanted to do that there was just no business model for. And so I decided to go nonprofit uh, in 2012. And so really the impetus for doing the nonprofit was um, I wanted to launch an Indonesian environmental news service. So environmental news in, in Indonesian language. And the reason I chose Indonesia was I saw it being at potentially this, this uh, tipping point, kind of like where Brazil was in the mid 2000s. So Indonesia had this really high deforestation rate, um, but it seemed to be at a point where it could tip towards reducing deforestation while continuing to grow the economy, and which is exactly what Brazil did. And so um, I thought um, one of the big issues in Indonesia is corruption and natural resources. And so um, Manga Bay could actually help with that because we can create greater um, accountability um, through more transparency. And so, you know, I would love to do this. And so I um, luckily uh, uh, was able to secure a grant. And uh, the day I secured the grant, I announced these job openings, put it out to my network. Um, I had 200 applications uh, in two weeks, um, went over to Indonesia. I, I did not speak a word of Indonesian, um, interviewed, I think it was 40, 40 candidates in three days. And then two weeks later, I had my team in place and we launched a month later. And then within a month after that, it was the most popular Indonesian language environmental news service. So it took off really well. I think I got really lucky by, you know, finding the right people to launch this news service. So that was really the birth of, of kind of Manga Bay as a nonprofit, which we are now. And Indonesia is a great place to test a lot of ideas, um, which we've now then taken to the rest of the world as we continue to grow. So who is your audience? Who, who are the people that read the articles and, and get their news from Manga Bay? Um, so we have kind of different user groups. Um, we have a disproportionate amount of following um, among conservation groups, obviously, and kind of conservation science in that community. Um, we have a lot of usage among um, educators, so any uh, all the way from sort of elementary level to university level. Um, and then kind of some of our most important users are um, within develop, uh, aid agencies, overseas development aid, so like USAID, NORAD, which is Norway's um, overseas Development Agency, um, DFID, which is the UK's. And so these are folks who are supporting a lot of conservation pro projects and making a lot of decisions that affect um, environmental policy. And so, um, you know, those are really critical for us. And then also within different countries within the agencies that manage natural resources. So um, ministries of environment, minist ministries of fisheries, ministries of forestries uh, use Mongo Bay quite, quite a bit. And then we also just have a kind of a mass market um, following on people who are generally interested in wildlife and nature. And so how do you, you know, how do you kind of, um, I guess, you know, titrate how much of it is sort of 
you know, scientific versus translating science to the general public. I mean, it sounds like, especially if you are the main source for a lot of these organizations, you really, you know, want to be fairly academic and objective. But at the same time, you know, these the people that are reading Manga Bay are not necessarily going to be well versed in the actual science themselves. So, so how, like, is it is it sort of in the way in which you pick your journalists? Or does Manga Bay have a particular voice? Like, how do you kind of navigate that that area? Well, so we write for a mass market audience, and so that seems to reach the most people, obviously, but you know, by definition. But um, the targeting really comes in content selection. So we pick topics that um, you know that that these specials will be interested in, and then if someone really wants to dig into the details, if we're covering science and we have a citation at the bottom, so they can you know easily go and uh, access the, the scientific paper that's based on. But um, we found that the way to re- really reach the most people um, is through this kind of general interest um, writing style. Um, you know, and, and a lot of you know ministers are really busy within these agencies as are scientists, and so reading something that's um, not you know academically dense, which I can just kind of digest, get a little summary, is very helpful. And for sort of the, the social media age, we even um, boil it down more simply than that. We have three bullet points at the top of every story, so you can literally you know get a sense of the story with three bullet points. So um, you know, really trying to target going as broad as possible so people can can kind of get that information um and the content is really where we target so let's talk a little bit about um conservation efforts and you know one of the th- one of the important you know sides of that is that you understand the science behind the problem right so you know why are are orangutans disappearing um you know at, but the second side of that is once you implement a conservation policy whether or not it's been effective. And so, you know, in terms of conservation science, where are we uh, with respect to the balance between those two things? Are we still in the stage of, hey, you know, we're going to figure out what the facts are, and then we're going to suggest a whole bunch of things, and we don't know if they're going to work yet? Or are we have we gone beyond that to testing different different sort of conservation policies and figuring out which ones are more effective? Um, so it's a little bit of the first, actually. So we just did a, um, we're, we're still doing this series on conservation effectiveness. So it's looking at what does the academic literature tell us about what works and what doesn't work in conservation. And what we're finding is there's a lot of, a lot of, for a lot of the interventions, it's we don't know yet. The data isn't that strong. And so one of the big challenges in the space is that these, these studies are often not rigorous enough. You know, you don't have um, blind controls. Um, so you can't necessarily draw the conclusions that you want to draw. So you have sort of the anecdotal common sense, though, this works, this doesn't work. But when you go to the literature, it's kind of like, well, it's not really, it's not really supporting one way or the other. And so that's been one of the findings from this, uh, from this reporting, which is a little bit frustrating, but I think still helpful. Um, so what, what it's helped do is it's helped identify, um, well, why don't, you know, what, what don't we know that we need to know in order to to you know, pass judgment on this intervention, and so um, within the landscape, I mean, conservation groups are—it's it's a very difficult space to operate in because you're you're relying on on donors, and so um, you know a lot of this is, is is driven by what donors are interested in, but there's also kind of inertia in the system. So if you've hired a hundred people to do payments for ecosystem services type work as a conservation group, you can't just uh, rotate on you know at a whim. And switch to something else, and so you have to you, know, you build these systems, and they need to last. They're intended to last a long, long period of time. Uh, makes it harder to um, to turn things around. Um, and then if you have a funder who loses, who decides, okay, well, we're doing certification, but now we don't believe in certification. We want to support um, 
anti-poverty or something. It's kind of like, well, you know, how do I shift? So it, it's a very challenging space. I mean, if if conservation was an easily solvable issue, um, you know, we, we wouldn't still be doing it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's one of the things that I, I've I, that sort of has bothered me, you know, over the years is that I feel like you know there are a lot of people who are really interested in, in conservation. Conservation seems like a good word, you know, and yet we argue about what may or may not be the right policy. And without science to tell us, I think it's really hard to make those decisions in a fact based way. Um, so, you know, I'm hoping that we soon get to this point in conservation science where we can start to say, hey, you know, this this conservation policy works better than this other one. <laughs> and therefore, that's, you know, what the lawmakers should be concentrating on. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the really important things is that funders which support this work really have to be in it for the long haul and support the kind of science that we need to make these decisions. And so if they're just doing one off um, projects that are really short term, it makes it really hard for a conservation scientist or a conservation group to to come up with the evidence they need to, you know, be definitive. Yeah, it's an interesting problem that you that you uh, bring up about you know when you are privately funded or you know by foundations and so forth. And you know we we had on this show a professor from Yale named Paul Bloom who who wrote a book called Against Empathy, and you know his thesis was in part that. Empathy sometimes leads to poor decision making. So, for example, uh, if you have a, a, a video of a starving child in Africa, that can be really moving and you can quickly write your check to send a dollar a day to the organization who's going to you know, feed this child. But, you know, the fact that there are millions of starving children in Africa doesn't move you because it's hard to empathize with a million people. Uh, and I think some of those same problems are probably ones that, you know, organizations that you work with will face. Um, you know, how do you how do you uh, engage with potential donors or foundations and and still maintain some kind of scientific integrity, you know, without sort of pulling on the heartstrings? Yeah, I mean, I think that's why a lot of these groups focus on a single animal or, you know, they use like a pandas or logo or they'll focus on a, a flagship species because that's people relate to the the flurry, uh, the furry and fluffy animals. Mm-hmm. You know, most people don't relate to um, an ecosystem or, or just say a forest or a microbe or something like that. So it's looking for what are the crossover um, images or messages that we can use in order to get people to, to support this. And one of the big problems in conservation traditionally is there hasn't been sort of a business model that, that works consistently. And so, you know, a decade ago, people were talking about payments for ecosystem services, which was a way, you know, it's performance-based con- conservation where there's uh, an economic model for supporting it. Um, and that hasn't really panned out so far. And so, you know, it's kind of like, well, okay, what's next now? We can't really make a business. There's not really a business model that supports large scale conservation, except for sort of these one off ecotourism projects. Yeah, I mean, you're a bit of an anomaly. Like most people, I think, who who would go to Madagascar would pick the lemurs, not the frogs, right? (laughs) Well, I mean, lemurs are pretty awesome. But uh, (laughs) the frogs are the frogs are, you know, are pretty cool, too. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's everything in Madagascar is pretty interesting. (laughs) So what do you hope uh, Manga Bay will do in the future? And like, what do you see in terms of um, your place in, in this kind of larger conservation world? Well, we look for opportunities where we can be impactful. And so as we expand into new markets, that's what we've been, you know, that's what we've been trying to address. And so last, or I guess it's 2016 now, we launched in Spanish-speaking Latin America. And then this week we launched in India 
So I mean, India, India is a, an obvious market. Um, looking at there's other markets that would make sense. I mean, for example, the Philippines, where you have um, a lot of environmental problems, a lot of interest in in, um, in environmental issues. So um, continuing to expand in places that are strategic um, in order to reach more people, um, where there's still a lot of biodiversity and where biodiversity is being lost. And so I see that that sort of trend continuing for us. Um, another is looking at how people consume content, and so video you know, the past several years has gotten really popular and, you know, Facebook is saying it's going to be 80% of content consumption by 2020. And so, um, some people just don't read anymore. And so, you know, we're, we're adapting and creating content for that, you know, for, for a video audience as well. So trying to leverage our, our written content. And so with Mongabay, we've done is, um, this is really born out of Indonesia where we started to build a network of contributors um, around the world. So these are journalists who report for us. And so with this network, which has expanded from about 20 people in just one country in 2015 to, I think it was about 250 last year in about 50 countries. Um, so we can leverage that network now for reporting on any topic. And so I, I see us continuing to sort of build that, uh, that network of local journalists who are local, who have local issue area expertise, who can also be taking photos, shooting video and things like that. So um, scaling that way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about how, you know, I, I would think that thinking about conversation seems like a first world problem, right? People who, ha who don't have to worry about food and shelter can then think about, you know, saving the orangutans. Whereas, you know, most of the places in which uh, uh, conservation is a huge issue are developing countries or, you know, third, wo third world countries where there are, there are a lot of other issues to be faced. Are you finding that it's more effective to go straight into those countries and to demonstrate to them, you know, why it's important for them to to make decisions that, you know, look for a conservation type future, um, or to change the hearts and minds of people in the first world, uh, who can fund problem solving in, in some of these developing countries? I mean, that's a really good question. Uh, I mean, the easy answer is it's, you need some of both, but a lot of the time in, in say a tropical developing country, um, it's really a matter of putting, you know, food on the table or just basic necessities. And so people know that the forest provides these services for them, but they don't really have alternatives. And so that's one of the challenges is that, you know, their local people may know that they're destroying, destroying their livelihoods, but they don't have any other choice. Um, I mean, that's kind of, that's pretty dire. Um, usually it's, it's not quite that dire. Well, at least in a lot of places we work where it's more of, um, it's very helpful if you can get local politicians and um, decision makers aware of of the the services that the economic services that are provided by forests, and so that be, that's an argument then for okay, we won't we won't allocate this land for a large scale concession or build this road through this park because if we do that, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to provide more services to it's gonna cost us more money to provide services for local people. So you know, fresh water. Um, uh, I mean, freshwater is a big one, obviously, but the more malaria, um, the risk of fire, um, air pollution, things like that. And so it, it's certainly it's certainly a matter of reaching the right people in these countries. So, um, But as you mentioned, I mean, the U.S. is also a huge consumer of a lot of the products that we that we pull out of forests. So raising awareness on things like palm oil and, and uh, tropical timber and where those things are coming from, um, getting people to understand that their consumption here really makes a big difference in other countries. And then if people will donate, that's also great as well. But I think um, it, thinking about consumption patterns is really, is really a critical thing. Hmm. 
So just recently, um, you know, you wrote a kind of summary article of the state of rainforests and, you know, this being, you know, it seems like you're one of your areas, at least of, of passion. Um, so I want, can you tell us a little bit about what's happening or what has happened in the last year in terms of rainforest and, you know, what, what are the big problems and, and what does the science have to tell us? Sure. So um, one of the problems we have sort of with in the near term with forests, we still don't have great monitoring. So we know we tend to know what happened two years ago, but not so much in the past few months. And so there are some great new technologies that are helping us um, see near term um, potential deforestations and deforestation alert systems. But if you look at the spatial area that's cleared every year, we sort of have this delay. So that adds a little bit of complexity to it. But the general trend with forests, um, I like to say it's positive. It's it's not. It's kind of a mixed bag. Every there's a lot of variation depending on um, macroeconomic trends and 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 climate and weather. And so the last the last year, 2017 was um was kind of a hard year for forests. There was a lot of fire, and so this has been predicted by a lot of science. Um, you know, showing that. Uh, Changing climate is bringing drier conditions and in tropical forests, which make them more uh, at greater risk to uh, to fire or to drought and then fire, and so that's worsened by fragmentation and deforestation. So in places like the Amazon, there are roads being built, which then have edge effects within the forest fragments that are left, which uh, tend to make them dry out more. And then, so if there's natural uh, natural ignition sources for fire, that's you know that's a risk. But then people also will start fires to clear cattle pasture. So that's happening in the Amazon. It's happening in Africa. It's happening in um, Indonesia. Um, so it's a large scale problem. And 2017 was was a bad year for fires. Um, probably not as bad as 2015, which was sort of like an Armageddon year. That was also an El Nino year. Um, so El Nino tends to bring uh, dry conditions to the Amazon. Um, and also um, Indonesia, Malaysia region. So um, that's when you see the really catastrophic fires. Um, there were some positive, definitely some positive things. I mean, there were uh, several new major conservation areas established. Um, companies continue to sign these um, policies that uh, that, are, that aim to eliminate deforestation from their commodity supply chains. So that's very positive. Um, that said, those commitments are still just commitments, and the implementation is a lot a lot harder than just. Um, saying you're going to do something. And so companies are sort of navigating that sometimes now with the help of NGOs, trying to understand what that actually means on the ground. Um, so that's been, um, so that, that continues to progress. Um, I can't say there's a huge, a huge leap forward in 2017 on that, but there were, there, there were more companies who were signing these agreements. Um, technology is also improving. So I mentioned that we don't know exactly how much forest is cleared last year, but, um, the uh, monitoring technologies are getting better and better covering larger areas to give us um, near real-time data showing, okay, well, forest is being cleared here. We can't necessarily say how much, but we can see that there's activity going on here. So if there was uh, if there was political will and law enforcement capacity, you could actually take action on the ground. Um, and then sort of below the canopy, you know, actually on the ground, um, there's been a lot of advancement with sensors, so things like camera traps, making them more efficient for gathering uh, gathering data. And then also um, a really interesting area is um, bioacoustic monitoring. So the idea of putting sensors in the um, audio sensors in the forest and listening for sounds. So you create sort of like a, a baseline a soundscape, looking what an ecosystem normally looks like, and then trying to um, see how that changes with different types of disturbance or seasonality. And so I think. Uh, in terms of biodiversity monitoring, that uh, 
the sound could really be the critical critical thing that kind of takes us to the level where we need to need to be to say that okay well we can actually see that biodiversity is declining here rather than just measuring a proxy like forest cover so if uh, our listeners wanted to change one consumption pattern or a few consumption patterns that might ease some of the strain on forests what should they do uh, it would probably be looking at your meat consumption so uh, about 70% of forest clearing in the largest rainforest in the world, which is the Brazilian Amazon, is for creating cattle pasture. And so that cattle pasture is um, a huge driver of deforestation. And then also um, a significant driver of deforestation is soy. And a lot of that soy is ending up in going into uh, animal feed. And so really your, um, your meat consumption has a big impact on forests. Hmm. as well as carbon emissions. I would have thought you you would have said something like, you know, dry your hands in that uh, Dyson dryer rather than taking napkins. But is that, I mean, are those, those I see more and more of those kinds of interventions in, in you know, sort of eco-friendly bathrooms where, you know, it's, it's you're, they're trying to compost more and, and convince us not to use napkins. Is that really just a tiny part of, of the problem or is it, does it make a significant impact? I mean, I, I, I think it makes an impact. Uh, the the size of the impact, uh, I've never really tried to quantify. Um, it also depends on what forest you're looking at. So I'm talking about tropical forests. Um, a lot of that fiber would be coming from plantations in Canada, and the United States. So it, it's a little bit of a different fiber source. The other thing is you have to think about where that electricity came from. So here in California, it's probably coming from the mostly hydro. But if you were in a place like, um, I'm sure some other countries that you know could be coming from coal or other parts of the United States for that matter, it could be coming from coal. It could be coming from biomass burning. People could be cutting down forests to, you know, produce that energy. So it's a little bit of a trick question. It, it requires uh, quite a bit of analysis, I would say, and looking where what the source of the electricity is. But I think the fact that people are doing this shows that there's more awareness. So that I take that from that, I would take away that it's a positive. Yeah, and it still underscores, though, the importance of scientific facts and understanding conservation, you know, efforts, because you're right, if all of a sudden, we all moved to air dryers, and that actually led to losing more forests, because now we have to power these huge things, um, that would be really problematic. Yeah, and I was gonna say, like, like, um, bio biofuels was kind of like that a few years ago, everyone said, okay, well, biofuels come from plants, so it's a great solution. But then people realize that they're cutting down forests to grow the to grow the the palm oil or the soy or the corn. So um, where can our listeners find Mongabay? Uh, so you can come to our website, uh, mongabay.com. We're also on social media. So our handle on Twitter and Facebook is Mongabay and Instagram as well. So, you know, at Mongabay. And that's M-O-N-G-A-B-A-Y. Thanks. And um, we also have a podcast every two weeks. Um, so that's uh, got some great guests on that. So that's another way to, to, to hear us. So yeah, please, please come and check us out. Great. Red Butler, thank you for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So I know I should care about the rainforest. I do care about the rainforest because I've been told that rainforest is important for the survival of the planet. But I don't live near a rainforest. Uh, rainforest doesn't interact with me every day. And frankly, if I'm being just totally honest, I'm much more worried about saving for my kids' education or my 
or that repair I want to make on my car than I am about the rainforest. Well, and even the renewable energy question, right? I mean, it seems like that, you know, is sort of a a more important thing to do first. Um, But of course, Rhett will argue that, you know, if we lose the rainforests, we lose a lot of diversity, we lose a lot of, you know, potential ways to solve some of these climate change problems. And so for maybe for you and I who live in California, you know, it doesn't seem like an issue that is at the forefront of our thinking every day, which I think is why it's really cool that Rhett has opened up, uh, you know, divisions of Manga Bay in places where this is really important, like Indonesia, for example. And it's been a huge success in a short period of time because maybe we're not the right audience. I mean, you and I are not going to go stop slash and burn, you know, stuff. We don't do it. We don't, you know, we might, we might choose to consume products that don't rely on that, those kinds of techniques. And that those are the kinds of things that we can do, but people on the ground in Indonesia, in Brazil, in Madagascar, you know, can have uh, a big impact. So zooming out a little bit, Rhett wants us to care about the rainforests. I was walking down the other the street the other day. There was Greenpeace activists that wanted me to talk to me about plastic in our oceans. Uh, scientists that we've talked to want us to know about melting in the Arctic. There's a million different things. Those are all really big issues. But then when we get to local issues, there's tons more. How do I care about all of these things at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a hard question. And I don't know that you necessarily can. I mean, I just think, you know, our brains just aren't wired uh, to be able to think about all of these things deeply and, and you know, uh, at, at the same time. But that's what I, I think is kind of interesting about a uh, a place like mongabay.com where you can go and, you know, you can get the information that you need. You can get us and, and, and you can be confident that the information is not hyperbole. It's not, you know, just built to get you to donate or get you to, you know, make some kind of, you know, you know, monetary thing. Um, and, I, and I think that that maybe with the advent of the uh, of, of how this kind of news is being spread, and how the cream hopefully will rise to the top in our fake news era, um, that we can find more of these websites being successful, and that, you know, the truth will really matter. So that's it for another episode of Inquiring Minds. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us for this installment. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Trey Bean, David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Andre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.